Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 104, The International Brigades. Last time, Franco maneuvered the top spot of the Nationalist cause for himself, and then renewed the attack against the Republican-held capital. Yet by then, supplies from Soviet Russia had arrived, as Stalin had only recently made up his mind to really help the Republicans. This, along with the Prime Minister's first steps of creating a regular army, gave them something concrete to resist with. There was further good news for the Republicans. Largo, the Prime Minister, working hard behind the scenes, managed to bring on board the anarchists into a larger coalition government. They were the largest group fighting against the nationalists, and their numbers would certainly help the cause. This group of several subgroups, whether in the countryside or the various cities, sought to help the commoners. In the past, they had used violence and strikes, but as the Civil War got closer, they became more sophisticated and added politics to their M.O. Their main capital was in Barcelona, which had already been resisting the nationalist forces, yet for their own sake, not for Madrid. Still, they were now a part of the Republican government, and even had Spain's first woman minister, Frederica Montsene. Yet, no war, certainly not a civil war, can have a series of good news go on forever. It was time for Spain's government to be dealt a blow. Ironically, this came from their own prime minister. Just as the anarchists took their seats in the government, the Prime Minister Largo called them all together on November 6, 1936. He announced that Madrid had to be abandoned. It was only a matter of time before it fell to the nationalists. No, they all had to make for Valencia, along the eastern coast, almost due east of Madrid. Largo went on to say that President Azania had already left and most of the government was currently packing. The cabinet resisted, saying that if Madrid fell, the nationalists would have won. Furthermore, if they, the cabinet, were captured en route, it would come to the same result. Either way, moving was dangerous for them and the country. But very soon, the newly chaired anarchist ministers found themselves alone in wanting to stay. Their last argument was, so we're supposed to leave those who are defending us but expect them to stay and continue on with the fight. Largo replied that a junta would be formed to continue the military resistance of Madrid. But the anarchists were outvoted, so all began to pack. That very night of November 6th, the government loaded its papers onto a large convoy of trucks. Watching them leave was General Pozas, who was given the position of commander of the army of the center. Beside him was General Mieja, who would be in direct control of the defense of the city. Despite the fear of being overtaken by nationalist forces while en route, the only time the convoy was stopped was when they came upon a roadblock made up of anarchists. These men, who knew what would happen to them if the nationalists won or the communists took over, cursed at the fleeing politicians and then did so again, doubly so, to the Russian ambassador, who was with the cabinet. 
As for the people of Madrid, the same fear and panic that had gripped them at the beginning of the attempted coup d'etat returned. But now it was truly up to them to save themselves. The most common chant now was, Long live Madrid without the government. In this climate, the communists openly called for local committees to be formed, and this was begun. As for the military men, they de-evolved from the formation of a regular army back into trusted groups of militia. Only the panic made these changes possible. The men around General Miaha were mostly in their 20s, and thus were called Miaha's infant guard. And though they lacked experience and professionalism, their cause stirred their passions, their desire to show the fleeing government what they were capable of. The people, now fighting for themselves, organized in a way they did not before. Women and children volunteered to carry rocks to build defensive positions, especially to the south, as the nationalist forces there reached the outskirts of town. With panic dominating the capital's thoughts, those known to have nationalist tendencies, though had not taken any action, were rounded up and shot. So too were those only suspected of the same. Many prisoners were taken out of jails and shot, not for their crimes, but because they were known to have nationalist sympathies. These decisions were made without the consent of either General Miaha or General Posas, who barely maintained control. With the capital in such a state, the Communist 5th Regiment, still respected by the people, took over security operations. Adding to this madness, militiamen, having heard of the government fleeing, could be seen running back into the capital from whatever front they had been defending. Some of them even jacked ambulances to make good their escape. Yet most men stayed put to resist the attacking nationalists. Back on November 4th, the town Getafe, just to the south of Madrid, was captured. The pro-Franco newspaper in Seville read, The nationalists were only a 4.60 peseta taxi ride from the city. As victory was at hand, the politician within Franco ordered the build-up of food stores to feed the people of Madrid, soon to be in his capital. He also allowed some Republican forces to the east of Madrid to get away from his men to return to the capital. He knew this would please the people of Madrid and play well in the foreign press. However, as his men had not completely secured the Valencia Road because of his orders, the Republican government had been able to make their way to the coast. Franco would greatly regret this decision of mercy. In late October, just before the Republican government fled Madrid, the first of the Russian warplanes, bought with Spanish gold, which was now safely in Moscow, arrived in country. In this shipment were 42 biplane fighters, 31 monoplane fighters, and soon after, a squadron of fast bombers. This last group raided Seville to the southeast, Franco's base. As for the Soviet fighters, they flew mostly over the capital to inspire the people, as their government was now gone, and the stunt worked. But soon, the German and Italian planes came, and they all dueled over Madrid. 
Whenever a plane was shot down, the people assumed it was another German plane that had been destroyed. Despite, or rather because of the dire situation the Republican armed forces were in, the people remained wishful thinkers. Now that the Axis supplied Army of Africa was meeting stiff resistance in the form of Soviet light tanks, and the Germans were finally having their nose bloodied in the skies, Hitler decided to give more military aid in the form of weapons, but also in personnel. Thus, the German goods would be put under an independent German command and named the Condor Legion. By early November, General Varela was just outside the southwest outskirts of Madrid, so the attack would be launched from there. And though he had 15,000 men under him, he wanted to probe the area to best effect his assault. Once Madrid was taken, he would need every man possible to control the passionate people. On the western side of Madrid, there was no suburb, as that area was dominated by the king's former hunting park, the Casa de Campo. Just to the north of this park was the new university city. Varela told Franco he wanted his main attack to come just north of the university. True, there were houses there, but the resistance should be less intense because of it. But Franco negated the suggestion. He wanted the attack to go straight through the campus. The area just before it, the park, had lots of open area, which his forces, with their modern weapons, were best suited for. Besides, this path would avoid trampling over the civilians, and Franco wanted the people receptive to him afterward. Varela understood and issued orders for the attack to start on November 7th. Light, fainting action would be sent a bit south of the main attack. It would look to the defending Republicans as if the bridges there were the Nationalists' main goals. Meanwhile, further north, Major Antonio Castellon would cover the left flank, pass through the University City, cross the main river, the Mazaneras, and take command of nearby hills. His artillery would then dominate the entire battlefield. Lieutenant Colonel Carlos Ansencio would drive forward and protect the main attack's right flank. Again, his men would cross the Mazaneras and hold the area. This left the center column of Lieutenant Colonel Francisco Delgado Serrano's to act as the main spear tip, which would make for the Plaza de España. His men would be supported by Italian troops and the panzers of Colonel von Toma. According to Franco's plan, by the end of the day, all three columns would be across the Manzaneres, poised to take the rest of the capital, the following day. As for the Republican defenders, their organization and planning was a textbook model of how not to conduct a battle. General Miaha had set up his headquarters in the finance ministry, and just under him was Colonel Vicente Orojo. The latter was known to be obsessed with French doctrine from the Great War. Those tactics had no place in what was about to come. But that was it, as for Madrid's organization. Neither of these men knew what men served under them, or how many. 
During the chaos, as the Army of Africa approached the city, many Republican soldiers fled. Others believed they saw the writing on the wall and snuck across the front lines to join the Nationalists. To add to this chaos, Miaha was told to hold the city at all costs, but also was given detailed instructions for retreat, if it became necessary. One of the more competent officers serving under Miaha, General Goriev, a Soviet, was said to really be running the war. Not that it mattered, as one of his staff, Colonel Voronov, in charge of the artillery, informed his superior that they had very few shells. Thanks to the mostly incompetent, though mostly due to fear, Spanish Ministry of War. If Voronov had the necessary shells, he probably would have given a good account of himself. Six years later, he would direct the artillery at the Battle of Stalingrad and be the one to accept General Paulus's of the German Six Army's surrender. Voronov and his Spanish counterpart, appearances had to be maintained, watched the unfolding battle from atop the American-owned International Telephone and Telegraph Building. As one of the taller buildings, it would receive much attention from the nationalist guns. Yet on the main floor, the chairman of ITT was relaxing with the press, plying brandy to all those who wanted it. He was waiting for Franco to come and had, in fact, prepared a banquet for the Generalissimo. After all, business is business. It can be no wonder, then, that the various reporters were already sending in their stories that Madrid would fall. The details could come later. What was important was to scoop all the other newspapers. Yet Portuguese radio took the prize by claiming that already General Franco was on his way in, riding a white horse. With these reports going out, various countries began sending their congratulations to the nationalist leader. But as they were wired to the Spanish capital, Miaja was there to receive them. Then Franco realized it would not look too good to have Italians, Panzers, and Africans entering the city first. He was supposed to be the new leader of the Spanish nation. So local troops were rushed to the front line, not to fight, but to enter once the city had fallen. Civil guard units were already given sections of the city to patrol and told to prepare to escort church officials. This last part was a nice touch, Franco believed. But all this took time. As such, Varela postponed the assault by one day. What would it harm? The war was practically over. But as the attackers were about to discover, time and timing can be vital in combat. For those who stayed to fight for the city, those men weren't just fighting for home and hearth. This was seen by many of them as a chance to stop the spread of fascism. Basically, the line had to be drawn here and could go no further. Less abstractly, the day before the attack, November 7th, a militia unit had searched a recently destroyed Italian tank. Inside was the body of Nationalist Captain Vidal Quadras. On his person was the attack plan's operational orders. 
Now that the Republican Army had the enemy's attack plan, the general staff, well, what was left of it, moved the bulk of their troops to the north. The Unionist fighters, though most did not have weapons, were ordered to stand behind those who had guns. If and when they fell, the commoners would pick up the weapons and continue the fighting. These men might not have been trained, but they were brave, even courageous, and would carry out these orders. The morning of November 8th dawned, and the three main nationalist columns moved out. Miaha had about 40,000 men waiting for the nationalist main attack, though some 12,000 had been left to the south to protect the bridges there. Colonel Yagwe's men moved out from under the trees of the Casa de Campo, but right away they received a withering counterfire. Castajon moved out with his men, but it wasn't long before he himself, surprised by the intensity of the defenders, received a serious wound. Still, the nationalist troops came on. Sure enough, some of the defending militia began to fall. Their guns were quickly picked up, yet roughly half of those men had only learned how to shoot the night before. And if there was a jam, the civilians could only look down stupidly at the weapons in their hands. As the day wore on, Franco's three columns continued to try to advance, but all they got for their pains were more casualties. That was not part of the plan. To be sure, the untrained defenders lost many more men and women, there was a woman's brigade, right behind the front part of the line. But their sheer numbers dominated. When the attackers halted their advance, Miaha's troops cheered lustily. The army of Africa, known for its cruelness, was not unstoppable after all. Then came more good news that evening, the deployment of the 1st International Brigade. The 11th International Brigade, miles ahead of the Spanish militia, in terms of ammunition discipline, there would always be a shortage, and trench digging, demonstrated its professionalism. The sight of these men, led by General Kleber, caused joyful tears to fall from all the locals. But as this was mostly a Soviet-organized defense, Kleber would soon be in hot water with Moscow, as it was seen that he was trying to take the lion's share of the credit. Yet the 11th International Brigade did not show up until after Franco's men had been fought to a standstill. Ironically, communist troops under the command of the Italian Commissar Luigi Longo, who showed up just before the 11th Brigade, would do good service the next day, storming the San Fernando Bridge on the Nationalist's left flank, while losing half of his force. In truth, he was only retaking lost territory from the day before, yet no one focused or reported on their deeds. Everything was about the International Brigade. The press gave them all the credit, as did the Comintern, yet the latter did so purposefully. This also helped Franco, in a way. He would report that the locals had not stopped his men, but those of other countries who had volunteered, who wanted communism to win out. Varela had been stopped cold on the left flank, so he switched his attack to the right on the next day, near the suburbs of Carabanchel. This might not have been what Franco wanted, but he certainly wanted victory 
more than anything else. Opposing him this time were Spanish militia, but they knew the area well. So as house-to-house fighting developed, the locals used their knowledge of the territory to launch many surprise counterattacks. Again, the regulars, the Moors, were held back, and they lost many men on November 9th. That same evening, the 11th International Brigade, two kilometers to the north, pushed back the Nationalists, but only a few hundred meters, and paid a heavy price for it. This slogging continued back and forth for the next few days. The Republican leaders, but more likely General Goriev, the Soviet advisor, then believed they had stumbled upon a nationalist plan to swing just south of Madrid and cut the Valencia Road to the east. This could not be allowed to happen, or else a siege would result. So a second international brigade, the 12th, along with four Spanish brigades, was sent south. This group of foreigners had even less training than the first. Between this and the language issues, this intended defensive repulse was greatly bloodied. But then came the news that the anarchist leader, Buenaventura Duriti, was coming with 3,000 men. Of course, this was met with cheers, but underneath Duriti was really concerned with the growing communist influence over the Republican forces. The anarchists were here to help save the capital, and yet at the same time, perhaps, save the Republican government. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 105, foreign interference. Last time we saw Franco's main force engage Republican defenders just outside the capital. The militia and the international brigades were holding them back, but paying a terrible price at the same time. But as it seemed that the Soviets were calling the shots, the anarchist leader Duriti and others were becoming concerned with the Russians' influence. So Duriti was sent to Madrid with 3,000 men, to help stop the assault on the capital, but also to keep an eye on the inner workings of Spain's defenses. Now that the anarchists were on the scene, Duruti saw that the foreigners were getting all the press and the credit. He needed his fellow Spaniards to follow his example and not be beguiled by the organized messages coming from Moscow. And his first step to this in getting the men's attention and respect, was a quick victory. The anarchists would attack the nationalists near the university city. This was dangerous, as the area was relatively open, and the buildings were spread out, roughly the same thing. But Duriti had been promised air and artillery cover. The attack against the Army of Africa on its left flank started early on November 17th. However, the pre-attack covering fire never came. No matter, the anarchist forces had been in several battles. They would pull through. But as Duriti's men moved out, they found themselves the victims of artillery and machine gun fire. Unable to stand up to this, they pulled back to their starting position. 
Though Duriti had lost men, he had the presence of mind to wonder if his lack of support was a communist ploy to wipe them out. It would not have been the first time in military history. For the last few days, another battle was taking place over the men's heads. The Axis air units had the advantage of experience, but the Spanish pilots had sheer audacity on their side. One such fighter pilot, Pablo Palancar, got separated from his group during an attack. No matter, his job was to shoot down enemy planes, so he got on with it. All by himself, he attacked several bombers. One Junkers, he managed to shoot down. That's when several Heinkels started chasing him. Palancar's plane took damage, and he bailed out. Landing on a sidewalk, just as calmly as you please, the crowd cheered him and made sure he made his way to the war ministry to get the credit he deserved. Two days later, on November 19th, the Nationalist forces renewed their assault. By now, more artillery had been brought up, and when the intense shelling had gone on for a while, Lieutenant Colonel Asensio's column, one of the three that had attacked previously, found a breach in the defender's line. Pouring his men into it, they soon crossed the Manzanares River and built up a strong position within the university city, in the Faculty of Architecture building. The Republican and Soviet leadership recognized this for what it was, the beginning of their entire defense unraveling, so sent in wave after wave of militia and the 11th International Brigade. Yet Franco's regulars and legionnaires were able to hold out. This area would be the site of some of the most intense fighting. Wrote one foreign fighter, once at the university campus, we started a ruthless fight for every path, every house, every floor, and every threshold. Here, the front lines sometimes go through the most valuable laboratories and libraries. Sometimes breastworks are constructed from huge volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Here the fascists have come the closest to Madrid. Then Franco, and one could say the communists, got a lucky break. During that day's fighting, Duriti was seriously wounded by accidental friendly fire, and he would die the next day. While walking past a car, a companion's cocking handle on his pistol got caught on the car door. When the man pulled it free, the gun went off, putting a bullet in Duriti's chest. He had been the most popular anarchist leader, and during his funeral in Barcelona, some half a million people turned out. Later, all sides, even the communist and nationalist, would claim that Duriti was really on their side. The bottom line was, there was one less powerful person watching out for communist influence. With another failed attempt to take the capital, Franco changed his strategy and made history, although the latter was not his intent. Again, it was of no use to him to take Madrid if that meant killing off the very men he would need to secure it afterward. No, the Republicans must be brought to their knees some other way. And so the world got to watch the beginning of history's first intense aerial assault on a capital city, with the intent of forcing its capitulation through terror. But proving once again that you need the influential on your side 
when attempting a takeover, Franco announced that every part of the capital, except the fashionable Salamanca district, would be destroyed. With this done, the Italian Air Force and the Luftwaffe got to work, systematically destroying one building after another. Of course, Franco's hopes were that the Republicans would give in before everything was destroyed. The million-plus of Madrid had to have some place to live, but as the Nationalist leader told the Times of London, I will destroy Madrid rather than leave it to the Marxists. But as the Junkers 52 and the Savoyas 81s dropped payload after payload of bombs, and Franco's artillery units fired shell after shell into the capital, the people there only grew more resolved to resist. Ironically, Prince Otto von Bismarck, the German Charge Day Affairs in London, mocked his guest country by writing at this time, British fears of air attacks are silly, since you see what little harm they have done in Madrid. Of course, when Franco announced that the Salamanca district would be left unharmed, the entirety of the capital picked up what they had and went there. Soon the streets were beyond impassable. Meanwhile, Spain's great works of art were taken to the metro tunnels below. With the bombing and shelling underway, the Nationalists brought in more fighters to protect their bombers. As such, on November 13th, the civilians got to watch the largest dogfight so far in the Civil War. Fourteen Fiats and thirteen Chattos dueled above the ruined buildings below. And as it was mostly gentlemen doing the flying, General Miaha put out the order that pilots who were bailing out were not to be shot. The bombing continued. Soon Madrid's most well-known and oldest buildings were in ruins, along with hospitals and schools. Pictures of dead children were soon sent out to the rest of the world. Just as when the first buildings were bombed, the people of Madrid were now more determined than ever not to let the nationalists have the city. The nationalist air attacks continued intensively from November 19th to the 23rd. And yet life in Madrid went on. There was no other choice. Ironically, people from surrounding areas continued to come to the capital. Madrid's one million inhabitants were soon joined by another half million. But before the air attacks, local committees were set up, and they went a long way helping those who were hungry and now homeless. Of course, the Soviet advisors were well-stocked and made sure to take care of the foreign press that stayed with them. It was the average person on the street that suffered the most. Still, those people took care of the troops on the front lines, bringing them food, gossip, or sometimes just visiting. Foreigners would begin to do this as well, becoming war tourists. One of the most famous was Ernest Hemingway. He visited the front line, was given a gun, and so took a few shots at the closest enemy units. Of course, once he left, the now angered nationalists would either shoot back or direct a few shells their way in reprisal. The war on the western edge of Madrid settled down into a siege. The people went to work as best they could, running for shelter when air raids came. Most people spent their time searching for food. 
To the south of the university, near Carabanchel, a siege settled in there as well. There were occasional sniper victims. Both sides dug tunnels to lay explosives under the enemy's feet and then rejoiced as the explosions lifted them into the air. But as time went on and the capital held out, the people's enthusiasm diminished. There were several reasons for this. The food shortage, the constant fear of death from above. But what really negated the Spaniards' natural courage was the infighting. Groups or leaders of the anarchists and communists could be seen yelling at each other. The anarchist newspapers were being confiscated by the communists, or told they couldn't write certain things due to security. All this tension, which had nothing to do with Franco, would boil over in May of the following year. First, Moscow went after the POUM, started by Trotsky's former secretary, Andre Nin. The two were no longer working together, and the POUM was not pro-Trotsky, but it was anti-Stalin, and that was enough. Either way, the communists stopped payment and supply shipments to the POUM, which soon had to disband and joined various other groups fighting the nationalists. Wars within wars. With Franco's attack on Madrid failing to secure a quick victory, now that he was the nationalist leader, the war would become a true civil war. That meant that each side would need more help from outside of Spain. Franco, in early December, asked Berlin and Rome for two divisions to help push his way into Madrid. But Hitler, with his canny sense of the international scene, decided that the farthest he was willing to go, for now, was the aid of his Condor Legion. Back in Seville, Franco kept promising his backers in Rome and Berlin that Madrid would fall to him, and then the rest of Spain. But after the attack on Madrid's western edge did not force the issue, nor did the continuous bombardment, the Germans were less hopeful. Not that it mattered to Hitler at the moment. He just needed Europe's eyes to be focused on Spain, and having the war go on only benefited him. But now that Franco was, more or less, back to square one, he had three options. One, he could cut off the capital from the north and the west, and then try to make sure supplies did not get inside. Or he could attack from the east, across the river Jamara, which again meant dealing with bridges, hardly ever best for the attacker. Or he could attempt to come down the Valencia Road to the northeast of the city. In time, much to his surprise, Franco would need to try all three. Franco decided to cut off the capital from the north and west first. So, on November 29th, Varela was sent to attack along the Caruna Road. His objective was to score a few local victories, which would rock the defenders back on their heels, which would give Varela time to swing around to the north. As the defenders regrouped, they would find it would be too late. By the time the militia was a threat again, the nationalists would control the areas spelled out by Franco. On came Varela in late November, with 3,000 legion and Moroccan troops. Assisting them were tanks, artillery, and JU-52 bombers. 
Their objective was the Pozuelo area, located just to the northwest of the university city. The Republicans, at first overwhelmed, retreated, but then came forward some of Russia's T-26 tanks. Together, men and tanks reformed the line and then counterattacked. This should have been a much stronger nationalist victory. To have the enemy on the run was only the start. Had Franco's tanks stayed hard upon their heels for even a few hours, it could have resulted in many more Republican deaths. Eventually, though, the German advisors who drove the tanks to the point just before the attack was to begin and then turned them over to Franco's men noticed that the locals would just get in the tanks and ride around and have a good time. Brave were the Spaniards, absolutely. Disciplined, not so much. Also, the Axis advisors realized that the communist pilots would not directly engage their aircraft. They would come close, harass, and take out any who left the protection of a unit, but seemed more concerned with not being shot down. Perhaps the Soviets could or would only supply so many planes, hence those sent had to be cared for. Either way, the pilots fighting for the Republicans engaged just enough to negate the nationalist airplanes. Most of the time, anyway. Suffice it to say, Franco's first attempt with his new strategy was not successful. The Germans were not impressed, the Italians exasperated, but the fight wasn't over yet. Greetings, members. So I'm sorry this is so late. Uh, in my defense, it's been a hell of a week. I had to do the Miss Freeman interview, which I think uh, was one of the best shows we've ever done. So hopefully you enjoyed that a lot. Um, let's see, my website crashed. Someone broke into my uh, PayPal account, stole a whole bunch of money. I had to get that back. Uh, so it's just been a hell of a week here. <laughs> I am so sorry, but at least we got these out now. And I will be putting out June's membership episodes before I go to Australia, which is on the 24th. So those will be coming out soon and not at the end of the month. Uh, so again, I just I just thank you for your patience and um, trying to get everything back on track now with security issues and whatnot. Um, so again, thank you for your patience and I'll see you soon.